It is Tuesday, January 9th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Callums. Today, the coordinators for the Trail Technician Program at Northwest Arkansas Community College are looking to put new students to work. So as of right now, there are 1,523 positions in Arkansas State Parks. 594 of them are currently vacant. So that's definitely an avenue. Plus, Wild Prairie Winds will unite for a pair of concerts this weekend specifically designed for Northwest Arkansas. We make sure that all the repertoire that we choose for every Masterwork series is is perfectly catered to the communities that we're going to. And from New Orleans to Fayetteville, chef's journey. My mom and dad were both from restaurant families in New Orleans, which means that you grew up above the restaurant and the bar like my mom did on Chapatula Street. Her daddy had a bar, sandwiches, lunch plate. We meet Chef Marty Schmidt, who brought her love of New Orleans cuisine to Northwest Arkansas. First the news. This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Later on our show, bringing the bayou to the Ozarks. Randy Wilburn, the host of I Am Northwest Arkansas, sits down with the chef of Rue Orleans to discuss her journey to the region. That's in about 15 minutes. First today, administrators at Northwest Arkansas Community College are doing their part in establishing Bentonville as the mountain biking capital of the world. Next fall, the school will offer a trail technician program, allowing students to gain certifications in trail building, design, and maintenance, or become certified bicycle technicians. Megan Bolander is the executive director of the Trails Trade School. Due to last week's winter weather, she and program marketing specialist Wendy Taylor joined Mozarks at Large's Jack Travis over Zoom to discuss the program. Boulder says the idea to add trail technician curricula came about through conversations taking place way back in 2021. At that time, people were in the pandemic. Lots and lots of bicycle riding was happening, and um, there was a huge need for quick professionalization of the industry for all of the technicians that were becoming needed. So the chair of BIEA at that time, Dave Olson, called and said, we'd like you to stand up this program. It'll be the second in the country with this curriculum that's already been developed from Barnett's Bicycle Institute, was at the time the Bicycle Institute in Colorado. And we said, okay. And we started it with seed grant money from the Walton Family Foundation. We're now in our third year with our third cohort. It's been wildly successful. And as we have gone on that journey, we have realized to be the mountain bike capital of the world, we also need similarly well-trained trail building and maintenance workforce. And so we are intending to teach people how to effectively plan, design, build, and maintain trails in this region and in this state. Absolutely. Do either of y'all bike personally? I'm a street biker a little bit. So um, I do mountain bike. I'm a a green trail girl. I'm not exactly um, an expert in mountain biking, but I do mountain bike. And I also am kind of the resident e-bike person here on staff. I I ride an e-bike and I commute um, when the weather is a lot better than it is today. Um, I commute every Wednesday from Bella Vista here to NWAC. Oh, wow. How how long is that trip? Uh, It's about nine miles. It's not too bad. We have a a group from Bella Vista that rides. We have a um, ride to work Wednesday group through Walmart. And so... 
Um, we bike in every Wednesday morning. So why are you personally excited to see this kind of specialized workforce development introduced to the college? So um, I have been here in Northwest Arkansas for 20 years. I've really seen this area grow tremendously and um, have been a part of the trails coming in. When they started to come in, um, just a, a pure advocate for um, the trails, whether they're single track or greenway, um, and what it brings to the community. So I'm super excited to see that we're bringing this this program to the college and, and starting to train that workforce to both do you know the bicycle technician program and the trail technician program, but to bring that to the community and bring that to people to to come into the workforce. I think it's important to start to standardize that workforce and, and offer the opportunities for students to be able to learn those skills. If I may jump in, an important component of workforce development is our developers in the region, our community partners being able to trust the work that's done. And so what we hope is that this will provide much more confidence in designers, designers, um, employers in the region as they begin projects, that they know the quality of workforce um, and the standards that were used to train them so that there are not as many mistakes made and conflicts that arise because the standard of training is now understood and the, the level of competence of the workforce is that much higher. So how are you marketing the school and who are you attempting to attract? It's a great question. Our stakeholder groups are really diverse. And so we have different marketing strategies depending on um, which audiences we're trying to message to. We want to do everything from raise consciousness about the program and our commitment to good stewardship of our outdoor spaces in Arkansas. But of course, we also want to message to people who would like training. And so we will have college credit bearing financial aid eligible programs. And we will also have short-term training in the future for people who want to come and do professional development, continuing education, and certifications like the trail building assessment, as well as Sawyer certification and wilderness first aid. With those certifications, where can students go post their completion? So as of right now, there are 1,523 positions in Arkansas State Parks. 594 of them are currently vacant. So that's definitely an avenue, but it's also for students. So for instance, if they enroll in our certificate of proficiency and tra trail technician, they will have what they need immediately to begin as a trail crew member. Likewise, if they get our certificate of proficiency in trail management, they will have what they need to become a trail crew leader or manager. We also are training people to be um, state park trail managers, trail company managers, and um, we will even have courses that will lead to design planning and master planning of trails and community development. So students have every have an opportunity to take classes each semester and at each juncture get a credential. You mentioned how Bentonville is, of course, becoming the mountain biking capital of the world. Do you expect people to be able to take their skills elsewhere, you know, to be to other hubs of outdoor recreation across the country or, you know, maybe even the globe? We do. Um, and, and it's both. So we've been very diligent in um, our partnerships and in not 
doing this alone as an island. And so, for instance, we're working very closely with the PTBA, that is the Professional Trail Builders Association, that is the National Trade Association for Trail Building. And we've been working with them and also American Trails to flesh out what they have created. It's called the Trail Skills Competency. And if you go to trailskills.org, you will see what all of us are hoping will become trail standard for the profession and the competencies in multiple areas that someone would need to know to be a proficient member as well as trail manager. Likewise, we are also developing our curriculum in concert with a group in the EU. It's called the DIRT Project, I-R-T-T, and there are multiple countries that are participating in this project with us to create an international standard um, that's very similar to what we're doing with PTBA and American Trails. And so, for instance, our first three courses in our sequence are the same as their first three courses in their sequence. So if there were ever the desire or interest to do a cross-cultural, cross-knowledge exchange and get certifications, students will be able to do that. It sounds like they'll need to gain more skills than just, you know, working with your hands and welding and stuff like that. What kind of, I think you refer to it as a soft skills, maybe what kind of soft skills can people hope to gain through working through these programs? Well, our first class, the Introduction to Sustainable Trails course will be a broad overview of the cultural and social and economic impact of trails from, you know, Silk Road to today, and not just um, nationally, but internationally. And so I think that's always a really important concept and conversation to begin about what it means to be a citizen and to interact with others on land and what does responsible land ownership and management mean. So we will begin big picture like that to situate the importance of um, contextualizing the skills that we'll be teaching. But also in the trail maintenance and management course, as well as the trail op operations and regulations course, we will go in depth into how to do community, community advocacy, how to work with permitting, how to work with various stakeholder groups that may or may not agree how a trail should look or what it should do or who it should be for or whether there should be a trail at all. So, so we'll get into those, those issues that can be dicey, but that also can be really important in helping communities progress and move forward. Something that really struck me in what I was seeing on uh, your website was this new facility. It looks pretty impressive. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell me about that facility and what, what can students uh, expect to encounter in that new uh, building? So it's going to be phenomenal. Um, there's nothing like it anywhere. And so on the east side will be what already exists, and that's our bicycle technician lab that has 12 workstations with more bikes than you can count that students work on. And it's just, it's state-of-the-art. It's beautiful. That has been in existence for three years. Directly next to that will now be a weekend and evening workshop space so that people who want to come in to learn how to maintain their bikes but don't necessarily want to commit to the year-long nine-class program will be able to use that space in the evenings and on the weekends. Then from there to the rest of the building going east will be a welding lab for trails, 
will be a room where we do woodworking and small engine repair and experience with the different hand tools. And that's a huge open lab space. And there will also be simulators in that space where we will get things on machines, but we will also give them hours in simulation chairs where they will go through what it's like to drive a skid steer and a mini excavator and a bulldozer and a dump truck. And that will help with muscle memory. So training doesn't have to happen on the job in the field for the very first time. And then we'll have a really beautiful classroom, of course, where they can do lecture, note-taking, discussion. It's, it's really exciting. It's going to be an incredible space. Um, the only thing I was going to mention when you're talking about those weekend and evening classes that we do currently have an evening class, more of a, as she said, a community class where um, people can come in and learn to work on their bikes. It's not necessarily a year-long program. It is a four-week class that we have. Um, we will have one starting in February and also one starting in April for the bike technician program. That was Wendy Taylor and Megan Bolander. They spoke with Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis over Zoom. The Trail Technician Program will begin this fall at NWAC. You can find more details at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Still to come this hour, how a jam session at the Folk School of Fayetteville inspired the artistic director of Ozark Chamber Music. While I was sitting there, I don't do folk music, so I had no idea what's going on, but I really enjoyed it. And I think that's kind of the vibe that I really want the chamber music experience to bring to people who might not be as familiar with our, our genre. Chamber music performed and discussed at the Folk School of Fayetteville on Saturday. We'll learn more in our second half hour. If one of your resolutions is to be more informed in 2024, start right here and stay with us. Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen to Morning Edition every weekday morning from 5 to 9. A third version of a government transparency constitutional amendment has now been submitted to the Arkansas Attorney General. This third iteration comes the same day that Attorney General Tim Griffin rejected the most recent version of the proposed amendment. Arkansas Citizens for Transparency is the ballot question committee behind this proposed amendment. They provided the Attorney General with four different ballot title options. All four were rejected. Griffin opined that the rejection is based on, quote, continued failure to clarify key terms, as well as, quote, continued failure to include the full text. Griffin says he is instructing the group to redesign the proposal. David Couch is a member of Arkansas Citizens for Transparency. In a phone call this morning, he said Griffin is grandstanding and treating the committee like children. Couch also said the people of Arkansas have a constitutional right to file and submit a proposed amendment in Arkansas, and that the Attorney General's actions to continue to refuse to consider this ballot measure is analogous to Griffin infringing on your Second Amendment right and coming into your house and taking away your guns. Couch says Arkansas law dictates that if the Attorney General does not approve a ballot title, they are obligated to write a title that would be approved. The standard for a ballot title is that it must be clear what a vote in favor or a vote in opposition means at the ballot box. He referred to the 2018 ballot measure regarding a raise in minimum wage, when then-Attorney General Leslie Rutledge rejected the ballot title three times in a month. The Arkansas Supreme Court intervened and mandated that Rutledge take action in approving a ballot title. 
Like in 2018, Couch says they plan to take litigation to the Arkansas Supreme Court. But they also plan to file a lawsuit against Griffin in circuit court to challenge the constitutionality of his actions. Lawsuits can take time to play out, which could mean that the time between the ballot measure finally being approved and the deadline to collect enough signatures is short. Couch says this tactic of delay, delay, delay by Griffin is not surprising. Griffin has 10 business days to approve or reject the latest proposal. As the holiday season winds down, many households are tasked with disposing of their live Christmas trees. The city of Fayetteville offers an eco-friendly solution to the disposal of these cherished decorations. Fabian Whittle is a representative for the Recycling and Trash Division for the city. So if you have a live uh, Christmas tree, you know, for example, that's live cut, um, so no artificial trees on the curbside of the same day where you get your recycling and trash picked up, and we will do that through the end of uh, this month, the end of January, Uh, just make sure you allow ample space between the trash cart and the recycling bin so that they can be collected easily when we bring them back to our composting facility here. They have to be free of any tinsel, strands, decorations, no plastic bags, so just a plain strip tree. Whittle says it's important to take the extra time to dispose of your tree and allow it to be composted. You know, we do appreciate people composting their trees and, you know, we sell the compost to mulch back to the community at a very low rate. So um, all of those trees that come back to us, we can get back out into the gardens. Uh, so we, we are grateful to the community for allowing us to provide that service. Crews are picking up the trees until the end of January. More information is available at Fayetteville-AR.gov. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. We're keeping something going in 2024 that we began last year. Our partnership with Randy Wilburn and his podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas. This week's episode stirs in a healthy amount of New Orleans with the Northwest Arkansas. Randy talks with Madi Schmidt, the culinary force behind Cafe Rue Orleans in Fayetteville. In our edited excerpt from the full episode, Madi discusses her journey from New Orleans to hear. I'm the oldest of six. Okay. My mom and dad were both from restaurant families in New Orleans, which means that you grew up above the restaurant and the bar like my mom did on Chapatula Street. Her daddy had a bar, sandwiches, lunch plate, and they lived upstairs. My dad, his parents did lots of different things through the years, but one of them was they had a little bar and sandwich shop on Magazine Street. And so from there, I think They, my parents instilled upon us the love of food and the love of cooking. Having said that, my mom was the youngest of nine and her mom died at nine. So she had a housekeeper and two older sisters who really raised her. And so when she got married to my dad, she really didn't have any cooking skills. (laughs) My dad was the oldest of three and he was pretty independent. And so just, you know, that marriage, the youngest and the oldest, Mom and dad marrying my mom, she had this idea that she needed to cook for her family. And she was more casserole. Throw everything in a pot, put a cover on it, and you don't touch it. My dad was more adventurous and so adventurous that 
he turned the garage into his kitchen with a (laughs) refrigerator and a stove and she wouldn't let him fry in the house. And so we would come home from school and we would pass the stove and we would look at what mom had and then we would go outside and see what he was doing. And my dad worked for the railroad. So he had odd hours. Sometimes he would go to work when we were going to sleep and Mm -hmm. then he would be there when we woke up. Sometimes he'd get in, you know, four o'clock in the morning, he'd be sleeping. But he always had some food. And he was really, he was creative. My mom had to follow a recipe. And so, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where I was brought up to participate, to peel potatoes, to learn how to shuck an oyster, learn how to peel shrimp, things like that. It was just one of those things with being, you know, the oldest of six, I did a lot of things in the kitchen. And so that kind of started the love of cooking and the appreciation of cooking. Yeah. Because I can give you a set of recipes and a set of ingredients and tell you to make a gumbo. But if you don't have the technique (laughs) and you don't know how to stir that roux and keep it from burning, that flour and oil and that recipe is going to get you nowhere. Yeah. I tell people that a lot of times. I tell my cooks nowadays, it's not just about the ingredients and the recipe. It's about the technique and when you add something and when you know not to. Yeah. And, you know. That's kind of how it started for me, the love of cooking. And so because my mom grew up on Chapatula Street, I have, when you walk in the restaurant, I have the window. We think it was the window in the room where she grew up. It's now a mirror. My brother saved all those windows when the building got sold in a couple of decades ago to Mm -hmm. a family member. And that stays in the restaurant. And then I have catfish Chapatula's as a dish in, on my menu to honor Chapatula Street. Okay. Nobody right. can pronounce it, but... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was I was about to yeah. try to pronounce it. Magazine's much easier, though. Yes, so. yes. <laughs> yes. And I don't try do to that. spell Chapatula because right. it's an Indian word and it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting, when people see you and what you're doing today with Cafe Rue Orleans and the impact that you've had from a food perspective in our community here in Northwest Arkansas, I think a lot of people think you've been burning it up since day one, but... You actually, this is, you know, cooking was a detour for you. Yes. You started first in education, which I found really interesting. Would you be able to kind of elaborate and tell us, you know, what that experience was like before you actually got, you know, you really licked your culinary chops and just threw yourself into that area? It's an interesting journey. And I really wanted to be a teacher. And so when I graduated from high school in 1970, everybody was going to LSU. And I was like, I don't know, I want to be a teacher. And so, you know, just opportunities presented themselves. And I found myself in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, going to Henderson State Teachers College. It's now a university, but it was a teacher's college back then. And so then I spent four years in Arkadelphia and got a degree. Special ed was, I was really in physical education. And then I had an opportunity to take some special ed classes at night. Really, I took them because I was at the racetrack during the day on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> Truth and, be told. Yes. yes. And so then I needed to pick up a few more hours. So I took a couple of night classes and, and I was, you know, one of the few undergrads. Most of them were grad students. So when I graduated, I was able to teach special ed and physical education okay. and did kind of both of them. Went back home to New Orleans, taught three years in New Orleans, having special education degree allowed me to work with a pretty large population from from Down syndrome all the way to basically a behavior 
disturbed, what they call emotional disturbed population. And so it was good. It was in a special school. The whole school had special needs kids. And and so then it was like one of those things where, okay, I need to work on my master's. And so then I moved to Lafayette after three years in New Orleans. Which has a really good food scene, oh, absolutely. by the way. I was I'm exposed to a whole different culture because people don't realize, Randy, that Cajun cooking and Creole cooking are two different things. They're yeah. both excellent. But when I try to describe it to people, I think of Cajun as more of country cooking. And you raised it, you killed it, uh, you ran over it, <laughs> you made gumbo, low, right. slow, long kind of cooking. Yeah. When you get to New Orleans, because of the Italian, because of the French, because of the Caribbean influences, we have we had a whole different thing. And so that's Creole. And you have tomato in gumbo in New Orleans. You don't in Lafayette. Okay. You have tomato in jambalaya. That Italian, they brought the tomatoes. So you have a whole different thing. And this is almost city cooking. So Creole city Cajun is country and both excellent and really good at, you know, what they do. And so going to Lafayette, I got exposed to people who really knew how to make a gumbo. Yeah. And, you know, I taught, I taught in Pecan Island. I taught in Abbeville, Louisiana. I taught in Crowley, Louisiana and retired after 25 years in Acadia Parish. And by that time, I had really gotten involved in cooking. Yeah. And, you know, I would do during the summers off, I would, I had a little catering company called a catered affair (laughs) and I would do, you know, bridal showers and receptions and small gatherings. And that's kind of what I did. So, you know, it was kind of a natural thing to think of. I retired at 48. That's young. It's young, but in Louisiana, you could. Yeah. If you had 20 years or more, you could retire. retire, So I didn't stick around. I had done (laughs) really what I wanted to do. You can hear the entire conversation between Maudie Schmidt from Cafe Rue Orleans and Randy Wilburn, including how Maudie landed in Northwest Arkansas, at imnorthwestarkansas.com or at kuaf.com. And of course, you can subscribe to the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast wherever you find podcasts. We share excerpts from it. Most Tuesdays on Ozarks at Large. That's the Wild Prairie Winds, an ensemble with members from several different states who will perform together this weekend at the Folk School of Fayetteville, as well as at the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. Their performance at the Folk School in downtown Fayetteville Saturday is presented by Chamber Music of the Ozarks. It's part of a Saturday doubleheader of music. Saturday afternoon at 3.30, Chamber Music 101 will be a free discussion about and demonstration of chamber music. Then Saturday night... Wild Prairie Winds present their program Southern Reverie as part of a ticketed event. Last week, Tomoko Kashiwagi, the Artistic and Executive Director of Ozark Chamber Music, and Katie Albert, the Executive Director of Wild Prairie Winds, both came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk about this weekend's musical performances. Tomoko says the Folk School of Fayetteville is an enchanting venue for chamber music. Well, I had this... uh 
a chance to visit, they were having a folk music jam session. And a friend of mine told me that it's a fun event. I should just drop by it. And that's just exactly what I did. And I went into the, to the house, and I immediately saw this really vibrant wall. They have a mural, and it's painted different colors. It's, for an old house, it has such a vibrant, you know, the, the feel is so active and alive. So while I was sitting there, I don't do folk music, so I had no idea what's going on, but I really enjoyed it. And I think that's kind of the vibe that I really want the chamber music experience to bring to people who might not be as familiar with our, our genre. So that's the venue. What musicians will we hear this time? Well, this time I'm, I'm grateful that um, my friend and colleague, uh, Katie Halbert, um, has a chamber music group that has been established, they're professional, who is going to be visiting us at the exact right timing. I'm excited to be hosting uh, Wild Prairie Winds as our first guest artist. Katie, tell me about the Wild Prairie Winds. The Wild Prairie Winds uh, actually first formed in 2017. We were all graduate students at the University of Iowa, so we were actually just like the graduate student wing quintet. Um, and uh, over the years, we would go on something called the Student Chamber Music Tour, which was something that was done through uh, the University of Iowa School of Music Chamber Music Program, where we would go for about five days to small communities all throughout Iowa. We were the first non-string group to get to go, and so we were really excited. And what we started to learn in that experience was that as wind players, we could play outside. We could play in venues that didn't have pianos. We could play in smaller spaces. Um, and we discovered that we loved doing that. Um, those, those unique spaces allowed us to be closer to audiences, allowed us to connect, I think, a little bit more. And so what happened was in 2020, we decided let's take the next step. Most of us had graduated at that time, and we were like, let's create a nonprofit. And that's where it all started. And so I'm actually the only original member of the quintet now. We've uh, had enough change in personnel where uh, we're no longer, almost no one, actually no one is in Iowa anymore, even though we're still based in Iowa. Um, like I live in Arkansas, we have members in Texas, the state of Maine, Indiana, and West Virginia. <laughs> So it is not all that often that you're able to get together, I would imagine. It's not. We come together, uh, I would say, probably four or five times a year. And so it's really special, and it's also something that we work really hard to plan. So this Masterworks in Northwest Arkansas is um, a series of these Masterworks that we go into small communities. The last one we did was in Nevada, Missouri, and it is Nevada, not yes, Nevada. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Which is a population, I think, of about um, 7,000. And we went in and did concerts at Cotty College, which is a local liberal arts school. We did um, performances in their local schools, uh, retirement home, and then did a, what we call our Masterworks performance at Cotty College. And so for the Masterworks here, the, the, the big concert is the one that we're collaborating with Chamber Music of the Ozarks and the Folk School. Um, and then we're doing outreach at Fayetteville High School and Prairie Grove High School, and then also doing a performance at the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park on on Sunday. The, this program is Southern Reverie, is that yes. right? Yeah, so one of the really fun things about our quintet that really I think makes us stand out from other wind quintets uh, that are active right now is that we make sure that all the repertoire that we choose for every Masterwork series is, is perfectly catered to the communities that we're going to. So this this was a really a fun one for us because um, we've, we've come to 
what's the farthest south? Maybe in Missouri's the farthest south we've ever gone. So this is the farthest south we'll be. So we were really inspired by the folk by the folk genre. We're going to be playing a piece by Roger Gebb called Prairie Songs. We'll also be doing a piece um, that is called Into the Blue, and Into the Blue is actually entirely bluegrass inspired, which if you think about a wing quintet, which is a flute, clarinet, oboe, bassoon, and French horn, <laughs> bluegrass is not, <laughs> not of the genre. <laughs> um, but then we're also um, doing a couple of pieces that are um, specific to Civil War, um, if only because we wanna make sure when we go to the Battlefield State Park that we're playing pieces that connect us to that venue. Um, and so we're gonna be doing a couple of um, pieces that are kind of arrangements or, um, of typical Civil War tunes, like when Johnny comes marching home. Um, we're also doing a suite of kind of like high society um, dances that are from the Civil War era. But then we're really excited about two pieces, one by Alyssa Wright that she wrote for the West Point Wind Quintet that's called Upon This Hollowed Ground. And it was actually um, meant to be a dedicated to Gettysburg. And then another piece that was just written last year that's called Waiting by Lynn Blake John. And it's about the, the tension of waiting on the battlefield before mm -hmm. the first shot. And so we're really excited to play those particular pieces in this, in this concert. And Tomoko, this goes also back to something about chamber music and, and battling that stereotype that it's somehow, um, you know, aloof or unobtainable. It's not just music that was written by men 200 years all. ago or 300 <laughs> years ago. And, and it sounds like Southern Reverie moves right into that. Exactly. And it is true. We, we still love, I still love listening to Mozart Quartet, which we're actually featuring in later concert this month. Or, you know, the, the classical, I, for the lack of a better word, master composers. But we have missed a lot. Um, and I think... We're at the, this great time where there's more researches, more resources, um, and we're really learning. So what's really exciting for me, and I hope for my music um, musicians who are especially uh, in this community, is that we're looking into not just you know playing the standard that we have played so many times, but then to uh, program some of those really well-known pieces with pieces that might relate or maybe a really big contrast to say, here's Mozart, but there's here, here's this really great music that was composed last year. And they can, I think, belong in the same concert program. And one of the things that's really good about chamber music for a small audience is that we're able to talk. Um, it's not something we walk on stage. And of course, yes, we love being, you know, the, the applaud and we'll love it. Um, but I think one of the things that I really think is important for us is to, to talk about the, the music, why it's important, uh, interesting for us, why is it touching us, how we would hope that it would be um, relatable to the audience. And I think that's the, the beauty of chamber music. You mentioned the, the concert that's later this month. That's the, the social? Yes, that's at, on January 27th. When Wild Prairie Winds was in Nevada, and you mentioned you were at Cotty College, but you were also at a high school, you were at an assisted living facility or a nursing home. Did you have any idea whether you had some people hearing chamber music 
for the first time? Yeah, we always try to make sure that we have a survey um, to make sure that we kind of understand what people enjoy about our performances, what they um, feel like we could have done better. We're always looking for feedback. Um, and Nevada, we had a, a pretty good um, response to those surveys, and most people had said they had never gone to a classical music concert before. And when we asked if you would consider going to one again, they said yes. And that's really the most exciting part. We've given that survey back in 2021. We did a lecture recital series in Iowa where we went to a series of uh, Carnegie libraries across the state and did um, a lecture recital based on pieces that were written in Iowa with themes of community. Mm -hmm. um, we had gotten a grant through Humanities Iowa to do so. And we went to some libraries in towns like Cresco, Iowa, which have a population of about 700. <laughs> so that's how small. And these communities had no idea what we were and what we were doing. But we get the most positive feedback from those communities saying, I've never could have thought I would like this, but I love it. And I wish there were more opportunities for me to hear this kind of music. And that's what we really love about what we do. Katie Halbert is executive director of Wild Prairie Winds. Tomoko Kashiwagi is artistic and executive director of Chamber Music of the Ozarks. Chamber Music of the Ozarks will host a free session, Chamber Music 101, Saturday afternoon at 3.30 at the Folk School of Fayetteville. Wild Prairie Winds will perform Saturday night at 6.30, also at the Folk School of Fayetteville. That performance, a $30 ticket, but it includes pizza and a drink. Wild Prairie Winds will also perform Sunday afternoon at the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park. The KUAF Giving Tree has wrapped up the 2023 campaign this season, benefiting the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. All the time people come back and go, hey, I grew up here. You hear the stories they give you about what an impact the center made for them, and then you're seeing them, and then they want to give back to the center. We're bringing opportunities for them to learn how to read, pick up their homework studies, and connections with people and mentors in the community. The Giving Tree and KUAF Public Radio. Your voice makes a difference. 2024 has arrived, but let's talk just a little bit more about 2023 to help me talk about the past year and some of the best movies of that year. Courtney Lanning, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Kyle, thank you for having me. All right, we're going to go through the top half for the numbers 10 through 6 on your list today, and then we'll do 5 through 1 tomorrow. The 10th movie on your list is one that you and I talked about, I believe, early in the year, and I remember you kind of being a little bit surprised and really liking it. It's called The Burial. Yes, this is a movie that stars Jamie Foxx and Tommy Lee Jones star in a legal drama. You don't see too many of those in theaters anymore. And I felt like this was a legal drama that was pulled just straight out of the 90s, you know, from the era of The Firm and A Time to Kill. And this ended up being one of my favorite movies of the year. Uh, I put it at number 10. Um, this was a, a movie that just had so much raw charisma from Jamie Foxx and uh, Journey Smollett and uh, a story that's actually based on a historical court case down in Mississippi. Um, you can read newspaper articles about it. This was something that actually happened. You know, I'm sure the movie took creative liberties, but I was completely enthralled and blown away by so much in this movie, but especially Jamie Foxx's just raw dripping charisma. The Burial, which didn't get a lot of attention, uh, you know, after it came out, but you can find it right now at Amazon Prime. You can, yes. You're going to see a lot of top 10 lists from critics at the end of the year and at the start of the year. A lot of the movies are going to look the same. I'll have some of the same movies that I'm sure a lot of critics have on their list, but 
I do like to pride myself on having at least, you know, two to three movies that people go, oh, I don't remember seeing that one. Well, number nine on your list is a, a film that has, since you and I first talked about it, set the record for highest grossing Japanese live action film in American box office history. And it has earned universal acclaim. And that's Godzilla minus one. Yes. I know what you're thinking. Um, Courtney, why are you putting a Godzilla movie in your top 10 list? How can I trust you? <laughs> Next year, are you going to put, you know, a Fast and the Furious movie in your top 10 list? And probably not. But I don't think Godzilla minus one should be written off as a, as a mindless popcorn flick. And that is because this is a movie that is such a powerhouse of historical and war drama. Again, a Godzilla movie, but, but bear with me here for, for listeners who aren't familiar with this particular title. This one is set in the aftermath of World War II. This doesn't have anything to do with the American Godzilla movies that have come out recently, which are popcorn thrillers. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no King Kong here. This is a movie that delves into the deep philosophy of a nation trying to rebuild itself after a destructive war, a nation that's been dealt with you know, two atomic blasts from America, um, a nation that had been sending off an entire generation of young pilots into suicide deaths with their, you know, their kamikaze attacks. And so this is a movie that touches deeply on the philosophy of the value of life, um, as well as mankind's hubris for when a, a thing like Godzilla shows up and just resets the playing field, because how can you compete with a, you know, skyscraper sized lizard with an atomic breath attack? Like I said, this movie just has so much going forward in terms of sound design and philosophy and, and human heartbreak because the main story focuses on pilot who was slated to be a kamikaze pilot, but who decided at the last second he couldn't go through with it. So the whole movie, he is just constantly dealing with people shaming him. You know, you should have done your part for your country. We wouldn't have lost the war if not for people like you. And then at the end, you know, he ends up being a hero who helps take down Godzilla. It's, it's just, it's very different. A war drama Godzilla film is just something that nobody expected and that we're all grateful to have. We're doing Courtney's 10 through 6 favorite movies today. We'll do 5 through 1 tomorrow. At number 8, here's one I was unfamiliar with, Flora and Son. So Apple TV Plus is a service that I think flies under the radar for, for so many people. And in a year or in a time when streaming services have basically become cable 2.0 because there's so dang many of them. It's hard to keep up with all of the content that they're putting out. But Flora and Son is a movie that I think deserves everybody's attention. It's another solid drama from Apple TV+. Plus. You know, this is a service that at least every year they're going to sneak one movie onto my list. Coda, you and I have talked about at great length, was an Apple TV Plus movie. Uh, Wolf Walkers was a fantastic animated movie. Um, Last year, uh, they had a film come out called Cha Cha Real Smooth, which was fantastic. That cracked my top 10 list. And Foreign Sun is just yet another brilliant offering from them. The story is very simple. This is about a single mother who is trying to raise her son, who's a troubled kid. Um, she's trying to learn guitar over the internet from a Zoom instructor played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a man who is in LA, and she's sort of forms a, a little relationship with him and she connects to her son through music. And, and it basically just kind of deals with the harshness of broken families and kind of learning how to put pieces back together. Um, it's set in Dublin. Uh, the, the music is just phenomenal. And the way that they film her conversations with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, they're not just pointing a camera at a computer screen where he's sitting. 
he he comes out of the screen at certain screen at certain points. They've got some really brilliant transitions they've worked in where sometimes it looks like he's actually on camera with her. Just a really emotional movie with fantastic music. Music I still listen to today. Florence Sun, that's number eight on your list. That's available right now on Apple TV Plus. Number seven is one that you and I didn't get to talk about on Ozarks at Large, but you had told me, because obviously you see more movies than one a week, you had told me that this was one of your favorites, so I'm not surprised to see it. And you also said it's pretty funny, American fiction. American fiction is, you know, when you think of the word satire, that is this entire movie. It is satire. And this is based on a book called Erasure. It basically offers this biting satire on the world of publishing, and how race intersects with consumerism. There's only so much I can say about the story because this is a very Black-centered story. And obviously, I am just a very basic white girl. So there's there's only so much I can say about it. But it's, it's very funny. It's very biting at times. It definitely gets into a lot of what people expect from Black writers, um, what people expect Black authors to be, and sort of turning that on its head. The story is basically about an author who has found himself at a bit of a plateau. His books aren't really selling anymore. And he realizes that there are other books that are becoming bestsellers that are written by Black authors who are sort of feeding into, I guess, what you would call stereotypes, cultural stereotypes of what a lot of white readers and consumers expect from Black writers and authors. And and he basically, as a joke, writes this book that is so heavily steeped in stereotypes that it becomes this huge bestseller and people are offering him tons of money for it. And there's a line he says in the trailer that is just perfect, that captures the attitude. It's the dumber I act, the richer I get, because he keeps doing more and more outrageous things, trying to make people in a white centered publishing world uncomfortable. And of course they go along with it because they think this is gonna be a bestseller. And then it is a bestseller. And he, he has to keep it a secret because he wrote it under a pseudonym because he is not, in reality, the person that this book is about. Um, he wrote it as a joke, but it just keeps growing and growing and blowing up. And it's it's phenomenal. Um, Jeffrey Wright is stars as the main character here. And it's just a movie that shows that he and, and other actors, you know, Sterling K. Brown especially, need more movies in Hollywood. Let's finish out the first half of this top ten list with... Uh... I mean, I think anything Jeffrey Wright is in, I'm interested. Anything Paul Giamatti is in, I'm interested. And he was in your number six movie, The Holdovers. Out of all the movies I watched in 2023, I think The Holdovers surprised me the most. This is one that the trailer came out of nowhere. I I saw the trailer and I thought, wow, this looks like a really retro style film. It looks like something straight out of the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, It stars Paul Giamatti, like you said. Uh, my wife and I decided to go see this on Thanksgiving Day because we are those people who go to the movies on holidays. And we both walked away completely enraptured in the power of a bittersweet holiday comedy. The story basically follows Paul Giamatti, who stays at uh, a boarding school in New England. Like I said, it's set in the 70s. And it's basically about him sort of babysitting this troubled kid who can't go home for Christmas because his family has basically left him stranded at that school. So it's basically about him trying to bond with the kids, um, try to make sure the kid doesn't burn down the school while everybody else is gone. And while Paul Giamatti rightfully deserves praise for for his centering in this movie, Devine Joy Randolph is also there and she plays uh, a 
cook at the school. And she gives one of the best performances of the year. Um, she plays a grieving mother whose uh, son had died in the Vietnam War and he had graduated from that school. And she's also part of this little trio with the holdovers. And they just have this on-screen chemistry. The young boy is played by Dominic Sessa. And the movie just kind of looks at the harsh reality of the grief that humans bury while they try to make, make do with what they have. It's funny. It's sad. It's, it offers a bit of you know, commentary on the human condition. Um, it's, it's a great film. All right. Number 10, The Burial. Number 9, Godzilla Minus One. Number 8, Flora and Son. Number 7, American Fiction. And number 6, The Holdovers. We'll hear Courtney's top five of 2023 on tomorrow's show. Courtney, thank you so much. Kyle, thank you for having me. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the city of Fayetteville has received $25 million from the Federal Department of Transportation. What are some of the ways they plan on using that funding? The Maple Street's a very exciting project, and we're so grateful to have it finally funded. It has been a long road. Um, actually, over around eight years, we've been working on upgrading Maple Street. So one of the primary goals is, as, as many of you know, we have the Razorback Greenway just a little bit off from the University of Arkansas campus, uh, just beyond the railroad tracks is where the Razorback Greenway, and we're missing that critical link between campus, 30,000 students connected to the Greenway. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen to the show on your schedule by accessing the Ozarks at Large podcast wherever you get your podcasts. KUAF reaches thousands of listeners every day from all across our region. We reach them over the air, on our website, through our podcast, and even by email with our daily newsletters. And your business or organization could reach all of those listeners, too, when you become a KUAF underwriter. More information is available at KUAF.com and click on support at the top of the screen. The 4th Annual Prairie Grove Boots and Badges Blood Drive is Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The Community Blood Center of the Ozarks will be at Prairie Grove High School from noon until 6 p.m. Monday. The annual drive is part of a Northwest Arkansas-wide friendly competition between area fire and police departments to see which community can donate the most blood. You can learn more about this and other area blood drives at cbco.org. Weather permitting, Hobbs State Park Conservation Area will host a free astronomy program Saturday from 4.30 until 7.30 at the park's visitor center. The program begins with an indoor session called What's Up in the Winter Sky, then night viewing of the actual winter sky scheduled to start Saturday evening at 5.30. Organizers say a clear night will provide views of a two-day-old moon, Jupiter, and for the last time in six months, Saturn. It's all free, and participants are advised to bring a flashlight covered with a red cloth and a folding chair, the program presented by the Sugar Creek Astronomical Society. The appropriately named Frost Fest Outdoor Beer Festival is back Saturday, February 3rd from 2 until 7 
at the Washington County Fairgrounds. Hosted by Fayetteville-based Fossil Cove Brewing, this year's festival includes beer from 60 breweries from Arkansas and beyond. There will also be live music, including performances from Bonnie Montgomery and Sad Palomino. Nonprofit partners this year include Appleseeds, Arkansas Climbers Coalition, and Pedal It Forward. All the details can be found by clicking on the Frost Fest tab at FossilCoveBrewing.com. And winter doesn't necessarily mean a pause to the music festival season. The all-indoor Ozark Mountain Music Festival, lovingly called Osmo Moo by frequent attendees, is back for its 10th anniversary later this month in Eureka Springs. More than 30 bands will perform during the four days and nights of the festival from Thursday the 18th through Sunday the 21st. Most of the music takes place on three separate stages, all inside the Basin Park Hotel. There are late-night shows at the nearby Chelsea's Bar. The busiest day, Saturday. 14 different bands providing music from noon until midnight at the Basin Park, and then the late-night show at Chelsea's. The lineup is a mix of locals, Cape Brothers, March to August, and Three Penny Acre, and out-of-towners like Nashville-based Trevor Clark. You can find out more about the 2024 edition of Osmo Moo at OzarkMountainMusicFestival.com. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Jack Travis, Sophia Narani, and Randy Wilburn. KUAF's general manager is Lee Wood. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Shaw. Today's show produced inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. It's winter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, you and I uh, were, were spending a little bit of time together last week, and, and you had said, the thing that I can deal with with winter is it can either be cold or it can be wet, mm-hmm. but I don't want both. And we're experiencing both. Yeah, and I, you know, all the forecasts, I don't, so I, you know, polar vortex, the last, the, the most recent one I've seen is an Arctic hammer mm-hmm. is headed towards us this weekend. Yes, I saw that. And look, I know folks who live in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or the plains of the Dakotas. I've got nothing, no reason to complain. Right. But I don't. I just don't look forward to an Arctic hammer. Yeah. It. Winter is not my favorite time. Wow. It's dark. It's gray. It's wet. And according to our friend Darby Bybee, this could be the coldest January uh, in quite some time. Fantastic. But you know what? We're committed to continuing to bring you programs. That are bright and cheery and delightful. Mostly. Mostly. (laughs) As much as we can. As much as we can. Uh, We have another show tomorrow. Yes, we do. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Stay warm. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on, interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org.